They say singing can help you remember things, so here's some tips for parents out there during these tough times. Number one. Make sure your kids wash their hands for 20 seconds after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside. Two. Virtual playdates. Social and physical distancing can help save lives. Three. Tell them they're safe and show your love and pride. Yes, we'll get through this together. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. A picture-perfect day in Rochester, New York for the 2011 WPS Championship game presented by the city. West New York Flash taking on the Philadelphia Independents. Welcome, everybody, to the WPS Championship game presented by City on FSN. Alan Hopkins alongside Jen Hildreth. So glad you could join us. And we couldn't ask for anything more in this championship game. And we begin with the West New York Flash, who have two of the better players in the entire world in Marta and Christine Sinclair. We only talk about league MVP candidates in this open here. That's the luxury we have. We'll start with Marta, the player who won it the previous two years and who has come on down the stretch for Western New York. Five goals in the last three matches. She's really heating up. Meanwhile, Christine Sinclair, I think, has been the most consistent player in the league this season. Tied for the lead lead in scoring with 10 goals with her teammate Marta. She can do it all for Western New York, and she usually does. And for the Philadelphia Independents, their MVP, Veronica Bocchetti. Well, she won an awful lot of votes as the season went on because she was simply clutch for Philadelphia. They wouldn't be here without her, no question about that. She finds a way to score goals when nobody else is able to, and you can bet she is the playmaker Philadelphia will be looking for in this match today. Going up against her former coach in the championship game, another interesting storyline. When we come back, starting lineups and the kickoff for the 2011 WPS Championship game presented by City on FSN. Stay with us. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations, friends. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and of course, you have found Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that's devoted to all things that used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. And uh, we're going back to soccer uh, today and, frankly, an overdue uh, relook at the women's professional game, uh, something we scratched the surface of way back in episode number two with our pal Andy Crossley, he of the uh, old Boston Breakers franchise. Uh, of women's professional soccer, the WPS, if you will. And uh, that is one of the topics, the women's professional soccer uh, extravaganza that was uh, back in the day, not too long ago, uh, back in uh, 20, let's see, 2008 through 2011 or so, actually 2012, if you're if you're uh, historically checking, that's when the uh, the league, the second really major attempt at women's professional soccer kind of uh, uh, ended its uh, its relatively short three season life. The clip that you just heard, uh, perhaps a little bit of uh, I don't know if it was ominous. I don't think many people in the stands uh, in Rochester on August 27th, 2011, as the Western New York Flash led by Marta uh, defeated the uh, Philadelphia Independents led by uh, MVP League MVP Veronica uh, Boquette uh, that day. Uh, I don't think anybody really kind of knew that uh, that was going to be the last ever game of women's professional soccer, the uh, league itself going on hiatus in January of 2012 and and calling it officially uh, kaput in uh, May of 2012. 
but uh, as uh, most uh, uh, soccer fans and certainly women's soccer fans know that that was a, a dark day and perhaps the second punch to the gut if you're a, a fan of uh, women's professional soccer that uh, uh, women's professional, not only the league, but but women's quote unquote professional soccer generally, right? Because as, as you may remember, the old women's uh, United Soccer Association, the WUSA, right, was the first real attempt and, and splashy and well-funded at that back in 2000, itself folding after only three seasons with uh, lots of money, lots of television coverage, and ar- arguably lots of uh, spending on uh, high-quality, world-class players and maybe uh, uh, some lack of uh, of guardrails, shall we say, on that spending. But here we are uh, as we dial up our conversation this week with our, our special guest, Bo Dur, uh, probably the most uh, uh, well-knowledged, if that's a term, Sure, it is for this case, for this this the podcast. Why not? In the uh, the realm and the specific genre, if you will, of women's professional soccer in this country, and uh, this is against the backdrop, the women's professional game, the WUSA and the WPS, of now almost thirty years of uh, world championship caliber play of the United States women's team in not only the World Cups of that era, but also, of course, uh, various uh, women's Olympic game glory, winning gold medals along the way. Many, many championships, both at the World Cup level and at the Olympic level. The United States women's team uh, over that period of time has been, without question, uh, over that period of of time, the world's best team. Not winning everything every single time, but uh, dominant uh, is probably the best word to describe uh, just how successful uh, the U.S. women's national team has been. Uh, and uh, no question, the uh, uh, the the drafting of such to uh, create uh, successful women's leagues and um, two strikes against uh, that uh, that sort of approach, that enterprise in the WUSA and the WPS. We get into that with Bo in our conversation. But as you'll hear, we sort of center around the year of 2012 when Women's professional soccer, the WPS, uh, did indeed call it quits. Uh, you could have uh, argued and, and imagined that uh, not unlike uh, followers of men's professional soccer in this country back in the mid 80s, it was uh, maybe yet another sign, a dark sign, that uh, this professional approach for women, the women's game may just not take root and not hold and, and just be a forever pipe dream. And uh, around that year, 2012, is when, as we get into our conversation, you'll hear from the ashes uh, rose for yet a third time, perhaps against all the odds, what now is the longest lasting and just about thriving. Now, COVID-19 notwithstanding, because it's obviously a challenge to all pro sports in this country right now across the world, too. But the National Women's Soccer League, the NWSL, uh, timely as today's headlines, just last week announcing a new uh, franchise, a new expansion franchise uh, to be uh, uh, to be funded uh, from venture capital. Mia Hamm is part of the part of the ownership group. She, of course, part of the LAFC ownership group and MLS and uh, a bunch of Hollywood luminaries uh, as well participating in that. And uh, if you've been paying attention, the NWSL uh, quite successful in places like Portland, uh, domiciling and sharing resources with the Portland Timbers of MLS, for example, 
uh, was the first professional league to come back uh, after this uh, initial bout of COVID-19 uh, craziness uh, and uh, is still playing as we record this uh, in their bubble in uh, in Utah uh, as they determine a Challenge Cup winner uh, for this season. But uh, the NWSL uh, really was forged out of the uh, the doings of 2012 as we get into uh, that background story. And uh, it's intriguing for sure, because I think many people would have uh, imagined that uh, women's pro soccer was uh, at the end of, of WPS, uh, kind of a lost cause. And indeed, uh, through the efforts of uh, an indefatigable bunch of people, including, by the way, U.S. soccer, which sounds ironic given the testiness now between uh, the women's national team players and U.S. soccer, the federation, uh, around equal pay and all of that. Uh, in 2012, if not for U.S. soccer, uh, I think, frankly, a lot of the foundational elements of what is now a successful and just about now thriving NWSL uh, probably would not have uh, occurred. And we get into that and a whole bunch of things. As we talk about women's uh, professional soccer, the leagues of the WUSA, uh, WPS, and now the uh, ongoing and uh, uh, bright sky lit uh, NWSL with our guest this week, Bo Doerr. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating conversation and, and unlocks another sort of pen, uh, set of Pandora's boxes, if you will, about uh, lots of other things that we want to explore. We, we touch about, we talk about Magic Jack, that curious little franchise uh, that uh, kind of relocated from Washington down to Florida. Uh, we talk about, uh, for a, a bit of time, the Bay Area Cyber Rays, perhaps the most inelegantly named uh, pro franchise in, uh, in modern history. We talk about uh, the past and the uh, present and certainly the future of the, the NWSL. And uh, it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. And it's all coming up in just a few moments time with uh, with Bo. Uh, stay tuned uh, for that. Before we get there, we want to uh, tip our cap of admiration to our friends at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Our pal Dean Mitchell and friends in San Diego. Uh, yeah, we uh, we tout them again, especially because uh, if you're looking for some WUSA or WPS memorabilia, guess what? SportsHistoryCollectibles.com is the place to go. You're going to find a, a whole bunch of stuff. For example, if you fancied yourself a fan or remember yourself as a fan of the WUSA's San Diego Spirit, one of the original franchises, actually most of them were original, uh, and it lasted for all three seasons, the San Diego Spirit uh, are uh, memorialized in, uh, in great stuff. There's uh, some bumper stickers there. They're ticket brochures. You want a spirit patch. Uh, you want the uh, a program pack of all the uh, the uh, uh, unique and different programs from uh, from their various seasons. Uh, there's a WUSA bumper sticker in the mix, a couple of media guides too, some uh, some schedules, all those kinds of things for the San Diego spirit of the old WUSA. You'll find those at the the website sportshistorycollectibles.com. You could also find uh, some uh, great memorabilia from women's professional soccer, WPS too there, as well as a whole host of not only soccer stuff from leagues all over the place, but also from all kinds of leagues uh, and team situations no longer with us for whatever reasons. Uh, and uh, if, of course, as you, uh, you, you dally around that site and you find some great stuff that you're interested in, well, hey, we've got a promo code for you there. Of course, good seats. The promo code is, again, good seats at uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Yes, I, I, I just get excited just talking about it because it's 15% 
off all of your purchases uh, when you go there early and often and use that promo code. We thank Dean. We thank our friends at Good, uh, excuse me, at Good Seats Still Available. I'm thanking myself, which is just nuts. But I do want to thank SportsHistoryCollectibles.com and, and Dean in particular for their long-lasting sponsorship of the show, the discount they extend to our great uh, listeners. And uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy that discount uh, now and ongoing, as well as the proceedings we have for you this week. Here's our chat coming up now with Bo Dewar as we talk about the women's professional soccer game in this country the, the last, you know, 20 years or so and uh, and uh, and the blue sky ahead uh, with the uh, NWSL. Here's our conversation we had just last week. Please, as always, enjoy. What is your professional and personal story and, and how is soccer uh, part of your life, because I know, you know, you've been a, or still are very much a professional writer slash journalist uh, beyond maybe an unwitting historian, but give our audience a sense of uh, your background uh, to get us going, will you? Well, like a lot of uh, Gen X people, my first exposure to the sport was soccer made in Germany on PBS with the great Toby Charles uh, giving us um, hour long. We have to highlights. hear your Toby Charles imitation. No, though, don't we? <laughs> oh, it's been a while. Uh, I, I, I seem to remember him just saying Beckenbauer over and over again, uh, and Borussia Mönchengladbach. You know, it's just the the words, the the words just grab, you know, someone of my age. And uh, then, you know, I played youth soccer in you know the early stages of what we call travel soccer. You know, in Athens, Georgia, and so we go to Atlanta and get absolutely destroyed. Um, and then I kind of lost touch. I didn't play in high school. Um, I, I was a runner instead. Uh, in college, I went to some games at Duke. I was there when the women's soccer program started at Duke. Uh, so I wrote about it a little bit. I was never really a sports writer, though, for a lot of my career, both in college and then professionally <laughs> when I went pro. Um, but it was something I just kind of dabbled in. I would write sports columns occasionally uh, while I had other jobs at my first two papers. Um, then in 1998, I moved to Knight Ritter Tribune uh, in D.C., and I was bored, so I started writing a soccer column and carried it over when I went to USA Today and wound up in the USA Today sports department. And, you know, I was never uh, officially a soccer writer. I mean, officially, USA Today hasn't had a soccer writer since 2000 when Peter Brewington left. Uh, so... I had soccer on top of various other things. You know, I was sort of like the sports data guinea pig, the sports chat guinea pig. Um, you know, they everybody thought I had technical skills that I didn't really have. And then uh, I did a lot of Olympics work, went to four Olympics, only one of them covering soccer. Well, three of them were Winter Olympics. They have not added uh, soccer to the Winter Olympics yet. Uh, that would be a problem. And uh, then USA Today's first MMA beat writer. And then I left in 2010 for more family time uh, so I could you know, see my kids on weekends. I wound up coaching all their games, and uh, I've written wrote a short book about that called Single Digit Soccer. And then um, I anticipated writing about a bunch of stuff, but soccer just tended to – soccer always won out. Um, ESPN uh, sent me to the Women's World Cup. I did a lot of work for them on women's soccer. And I've just stayed with it for whichever sites are still functioning. You know, there was uh, FOTS and they kind of they stopped 
using writers. 442 had a U.S. operation, and that. So you know, when you're a freelancer, things tend to be very tenuous. But uh, so now I'm doing a lot of Soccer America. Um, I'm kind of on hiatus from NBC. I was doing Olympics work for them, um, and there's no Olympics this year. So uh, that's kind of on the back burner right now, and uh, write some for the Guardian. Well, so I mean that it, that's interesting because it sounds like you almost—I don't want to put words in your mouth—almost fell in, I guess, to the sort of soccer beat, as as it were, right? Which, which, if that's correct, is actually not too far a stretch from some of the other stories that we've heard, especially on the broadcasting side, right? Where, uh, you know, they were either, you know, it wasn't sort of like the first thing or even the second or third thing on on people's sort of radar as to what to pursue, but maybe not unlike your. Uh, your digital expertise foist upon you. I remember in in my uh, crazy career in advertising and marketing and media, right? You know, but back in the '90s, you know, uh, the person who like had an AOL account became kind of the de facto tech person, right? Because, right. <laughs> right? So yeah. and it was more born out of just enthusiasm or some passion or, or interest, and it just sort of became uh, sort of a discovered go-to when the need presented itself. Yeah, I'm not the only journalist who has that story. Uh, I think uh, you find that you know Stephen Goff may have been the same way to some extent. I can't speak directly for him, but I think that's roughly how I understand it. Uh, you know, Grant Wall wasn't initially a full-time soccer writer at uh, at Sports Illustrated, and you know, I think a lot of people just. Uh, you know, we're hired to do one thing and just start nagging people to, that, uh, hey, we need soccer content. And they're like, okay, well, shut up. And unless you want to do it, well, okay, I'll do it. So, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's a fairly common story for people of, of my generation in journalism. So, you know, there are certainly a lot of people who think that soccer writer is, uh, is this job. And it's really not. I mean, there are only a handful of people that I can think of who um, made a full time living out of that over the years. I mean, uh, you know, Michael Lewis being uh, perhaps the biggest of them. Um, but yeah, most, and then a few people for Soccer America as well. Uh, but this notion of soccer being the only thing that you do in journalism is uh, pretty recent in this country, at least. Yeah. And, and even that relatively new, right? Uh, for whatever reasons, let's call it MLS perhaps, and 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 the influx and or the uh, media abundance now of, of of games from all over the world, as well as uh, uh, you know MLS's uh, efforts on the Foxes and the, the ESPNs of the world. But but uh, you know I, I think it's interesting too because a lot of your experiences of of late came sort of in the DC metro area. Now I went to college there. Uh, it's always been kind of a I want to call it a soccer hotbed, but it's always been a, a bit more maybe I guess shall we say advanced in terms of uh, its embrace of the professional game. Uh, that date ba- dates back all the way to the 60s and maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, but you, you, in some respects, you're almost in a fertile territory there, certainly participatory. But but I would argue also professionally, which also not only extends on the uh, men's side, but also into the fledgling and still fledgling women's game, no? Yeah, well, it's certainly an international community. And when I uh, first moved up here around 98, I mean, I had heard of this you know soccer bar called Summers. And I thought, wow, what a... What a fascinating concept to have a place where people just go watch soccer constantly. I mean, I actually there was a bar uh, when I lived in Greensboro, North Carolina, that would show the you know back in the day when if you wanted to see a Premier League game, you had to go someplace and pay ten bucks to see it. Um, but you know, went to summers a lot in my early days up here, and I remember uh, going 
two days on the same weekend. I went Saturday and Sunday, and one day was uh, an FA Cup game, and another game, another day was an African Cup of Nations game, I believe. And so I was there both days. It was packed both days, and I was probably the only person who was there both days. So it was two different crowds that came in and packed the place. Yeah, and that. Um, so yeah, there's always been a good fan base here. Uh, you know, DC United uh, did fairly well for you know for a long time, I think. But then RFK Stadium became sort of an albatross. Uh, so they've kind of been reborn. Now they've been to Audi Field. Uh, the Washington Freedom were kind of the flagship of um, WUSA and a good WPS team. And you, you know, the the Freedom stayed alive. Uh, and you know, this is mentioned in my book because I talk I compare the that dark age of two thousand four to two thousand eight, uh, where you know there was no professional league, but the Washington Freedom continued to exist uh that entire time. Uh they played an exhibition schedule uh for a couple of years and they entered the uh, W League, uh which you know you know, which is amateur and they were all amateurs at that point, and then continued on to WPS. So um so yeah, Washington. It, it was a shame that it, 2011 was actually the only year I can think of that Washington didn't have a team in in what would what, what you would probably call the top flight. 2012, it's debatable, but uh, yeah, that uh, and yeah, they've always done pretty well. I mean, um, they're currently playing way way out in the Exurbs, uh, the Maryland Soccer Plex. I think. The spirit when they start playing more games at Audi Field, they're going to have a pretty good chance to, you know, climb the attendance chart in the league. All right, so give me a sense then of so you know I as I said I went to college in D.C. I remember you're talking about sort of the dark ages. I even remember the dark ages, frankly, of uh, the men's pro game, right, which is sort of a circa 1985 and, and beyond. Uh, I remember uh, back when uh, Channel 53 WNVT down there in uh, in Northern Virginia was a, uh, a, a second or third tier PBS station. It was uh, almost like the locus for uh, international matches. Uh, it was like the place where I, an abundance actually of games from from all over the world. And uh, it was uh, sort of a, a great little secret. But to your point earlier, uh, not much of a secret, right? Because this was an audience uh, full of, uh, of expats, uh, people who are uh, transient and uh, from other parts of the globe, frankly, and, and the D.C. sort of melting pot, I guess, of uh, of ethnicities and, uh, frankly, a love, commonly, of of the game of soccer, regardless of who's playing it. Yeah, it. when I also moved up here, I moved up here in 98, and I remember seeing that there was uh, there was more soccer on television than I realized existed, because, yeah, there were a couple of just little channels here and there that picked up games uh, from various places, and so that was a nice supplement to, you know, what was then probably just like the Monday night uh, Premier League game on ESPN, um, which for a while was the only thing you could see free, uh, which was, um, you know, they would whatever game that's played Monday evening in England, so you know Monday afternoon our time they would show it. I I remember when it used to be a pretty big thing uh, on message boards. That if you were going to discuss a game that uh, that you were seeing, that you had to put like a spoiler alert in there because so many people uh, were going to watch it 
later because that was the only time they had the opportunity to do so. Now, I mean, theoretically, if you're at work, <laughs> um, that, uh, that might still be the case, and you, know, you may not be watching a Champions League game uh, in the afternoon, but there's so many ways to follow those games as they happen now that you know people uh, don't do that. But that's you know, that was the reality for soccer fandom uh, for a long, long time. And yeah, DC, there were channels, you know, just sort of these offbeat independent channels that catered toward world programming uh, that, and that's where you'd get that stuff. So how do you, how do you get dragged into uh, covering the game then? I mean, a little bit of sort of a, a sense of how you, uh, how much of this is your sort of uh, uh you know, pushing the story in front of your editors, even though you're not sort of uh, hired or have been hired to kind of do that kind of stuff. Uh, and how do you also, you know, I, arguably that would be a challenge for the men's pro game in the late 90s, early aughts, right? Given that Major League Soccer was only a few years under its belt and and not still mainstream, although I would argue the Washington Post and Washington maybe being at that time an exception relative to the rest of the country at that time. Uh, but then, but then the probably the harder, I would imagine, uh, bolder to push up the mountain around the women's game, which was, you know, barely, you know, beyond uh, the occasional quadrennial tournament, uh, and noticed by more than just a, a niche of of uh, passionate fans of you know in relatively small numbers. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine when I was at Night Rider Tribune, uh, we were having a meeting to discuss things that we could do special coverage for. And there was a kid who was about, I say kid, I mean, he was, he was uh, someone about my age and uh, had picked some sort of weird rivalry with me because, uh, you know, he went to Penn and I went to Duke and he kept telling me that, you know, Duke was for Ivy League rejects and so forth. And I would point to the U.S. news rankings where we were higher than Penn. And, uh, so that, you know, he, he, you know, he, he always kind of sniped at me about this and that. And in this meeting, I said, well, you know, we should probably do something for the World Cup this summer. And he's like, what's that? And I said, it's the Women's World Cup. It's going to be here, you know, soccer. And he said, people in this country don't care about soccer at all, much less women's soccer. Uh, so it's nice to be right about that one. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I wrote – at the time, I was basically just writing sort of a weekly MLS column – uh, just you know, putting it out when I was kind of bored at work because there wasn't a lot to do there. It was a uh, just a weird kind of job where you spent you had a couple of dead hours during each shift. And so then when I went to USA Today, I I said, well, you know, I'm writing a column. I'd really like to keep doing this. And uh, USA Today was laid back enough at the time that you could do that sort of thing. Of course, a lot of people did. I mean, you mentioned the Washington Post. Um, I remember there was a guy named Alex Johnson who did a soccer column that was exclusive online content, which in those days was revolutionary, you know, just uh, to have something that appeared online only. And so, um, so you get away with doing stuff like that. And yeah, there were a lot of cases from then on where I was just sort of, I was writing my column, which had a little bit of a following. And then, um, there was kind of a divide between the print and online staffs at that point. I mean, the, the, I think there were some print people who sort of were waiting for this whole internet thing to go away. <laughs> and so we, they, they weren't really aware. Well, some of them were, some of the, some of them didn't quite know that, you know, I had established this voice online. 
but some of them did, and then after a while, you know, we eventually merged the staffs. And so, yeah, I was the – at that point, I was pretty much the soccer guy, although we had other people who'd go too. Like Kelly Whiteside uh, was someone who covered college sports mostly, but you know she had played collegiately, and so she tended to pop in when there were uh, big events going on as well. So 99, obviously a watershed moment in, in, in women's, the Women's World Cup, right? It's something that the United States had in somewhat, uh, uh, you know, quiet terms had kind of established themselves as being, well, they won the first, the first ever one in 91, right? And we're still competitive uh, in that process. And then obviously having it uh, based in the United States. So, you know, when did when did you know, I mean, after successfully pitching this, I mean, when did you get the sense that you were, quote unquote, right? And when did you kind of as a as a journalist sort of get the inkling that uh, the success, the building success, the ultimate success uh, of this tournament and, and the U.S. team uh, would translate into uh, something that just a few years earlier would have been looked upon as a, a gigantic pipe dream that is. An, an honest-to-goodness professional women's league. Yeah, I thought that um, – I, I think there were reports fairly early on that ticket sales were going a lot better than expected. And certainly by the time you got to the opening game uh, and saw the U.S. Uh, in there, it was a pretty big deal. And um, you know, I mean, to some extent, I felt like I was right already because you know I went to the 1996 Olympic final. Uh, which was in my hometown, Athens, Georgia. It was, you know, I had played, you know, youth football on that field, you know, before, a, you know, before a, a University of Georgia football game, and that was a, uh, it was a big crowd. It almost sold out, you know, one of the largest football stadiums in the country. So yeah, they, I they even moved the hedges, didn't they? Uh, for that, they did. They, yeah, they I, I was at a bunch of those games. I was almost exclusively at at both of those tournaments as my Olympic experience down there. But but yeah, I mean that was. I guess that that's an unfair question asking about 99 World Cup as a watershed, because in many respects, you could have made the argument, I guess you're kind of maybe doing it, is the 96 Olympics was a true women's breakout, too. And, and maybe the first time, aside from the soccer nerds that you know knew what 91 was all about, uh, that this was something maybe, you know, more dynamite that uh, could be blown up and, uh, and, ex- and exploited later on beyond that. Yeah, well, no, 96... 96- uh, the TV impact was limited because you know that that's the thing about the Olympics. There's always so much going on, and you know it's very big when you're there. I mean, I've talked with people after the fact about the 2008 Olympic final that I covered, um, which I thought the U.S. was bound to lose. They, you know, they're playing Brazil. Brazil had just absolutely crushed them the year before, uh, and I thought they had no chance of winning this final. But they had a heroic defensive effort, and then you know Carly Lloyd scored the scored the extra time goal. Uh, but then people told me after the fact, well, you know, it was in another time zone and uh, it didn't have a lot of TV coverage because it was during the Olympics. So it didn't really resonate uh, quite as well. And so 99, I mean, first of all, in the summers, you know, it, it is kind of a dead spot for sports. It, it's where something off the wall can take hold. Uh, I mean, it's why, you know, we all cared about the Tour de France uh, for, you know, a decade and change. You know, there wasn't much else going on. And here was this American who was really good at it. And, you know, that's the kind of the same way it was uh, for women's soccer in those days. Um, 
And it was unfortunate that people really overstated, you know, what, you know, how to translate that to a professional game. And they didn't understand that Americans love uh, the big event. And it, it hasn't always translated. I mean, Americans would watch the World Cup on TV uh, if you know you said, "Hey, it's on." Hey, well, it's, okay, this is interesting. It's a it's a big deal. I mean, to some extent, that was the appeal of the NASL with the Cosmos. It was, "Hey, this is a big event." It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in there was going to then turn around and uh, get really immersed in the game the way we expect you know people to do so uh, these days. You know, the way you see uh, people in this country who you know, it's just watching the Premier League game this afternoon and seeing, you know, Liverpool fans at an online watch party. Uh, or, you know, you may have MLS fans gathered in the bar to watch an away game. Well, not right now because of social distancing. Uh, but um, and you have people who really make fandom a fairly big part of what they do. Uh, and so that... That took a long, long time to build, and I think there have been a lot of mistakes both on the men's and women's side in thinking that, oh, okay, well, we've just had this World Cup, so it's going to uh, translate. Eventually it does, and that's why I'm kind of, it's disappointing for women's soccer that, um, that they haven't had a chance to play a full season this year because – it felt different in 2019. There have been boom times before. I mean, 2015 was a big time uh, for what 2011 was a big run, a big time for uh, women's soccer. And, you know, those booms didn't last. This one just really felt, and to some extent, still feels different. Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 we're going to sort of get to where we kind of are now that NWSL and, and the, the thing that preceded it, which is a, a lot of the focus of, of your, your book around the 2012 year in women's soccer. But I think it's important for our audience, especially those not sort of deeply steeped in the once, twice, three times uh, a lady, uh, no, no pun, but maybe a pun, right, of professional the professional league for women in this country, right? The first one, I mean, you're, you're talking about 99 uh, being, you know, obviously a, 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 a just a, an unparalleled success financially as well as on the field and, and just uh, all of the, the cultural uh, uh, momentum that, uh, that the victory of, of the women's uh, team had in this country, right? And you could not have probably scripted uh, a better uh, set of circumstances to launch a WUSA with splash, with panache, with money, with a big backer like John Hendricks and, and all that stuff. Right. But in three years, it was, you know, done kaput. And again, you know, uh, and arguably in the backdrop of MLS struggling and a financial downturn and, and a different time in this country back even in 2001 when, you know, uh, the attacks on on. Uh, in New York and D.C. and in Pennsylvania, I mean, you know, it was it was it, it was clearly some some uh, broader issues at stake there too. But it didn't um, it didn't sort of kill the women's game, right? Because it still continued to be quite the success in terms of rebuilding, in terms of performances generally in and around these major competitions. Not always winning, but but generally regarded as the team to beat uh, in any stretch of the imagination. And then. And then the sort of seeds of, of a second attempt. So maybe, I know there's sort of a lot to unpack there, but maybe you could kind of just uh, in, a, in a layman's kind of way, sort of maybe describe a little bit of the zeitgeist of the WUSA, the sort of denouement of that, and then the, 
from the ashes this women's professional soccer second attempt, because uh, I think that's really important background for what we're going to kind of get into, because it's really the post-WPS stuff that is really the center of your work here. Well, the WSA, if, if you go back and look at you know attendance numbers and so forth, you'd think, wow, this league actually did pretty well. The problem was they spent an awful lot of money to get there, and a lot of it was predicated on the idea that they were going to get massive ratings. And when that didn't materialize, a lot of people just kind of bailed, and then all of a sudden, gains were on PAC's network at 4 p.m. and opposite MLS at one point. So you, know, you had uh, your national WSA game of the week on an obscure network uh, where they had to, you know, wrap up hard stop at six o'clock because they got to show Bonanza or whatever. So it was uh, really not too much of a surprise uh, that it went away. And then they they played a couple of exhibitions the next year, try, thinking, oh, well, we're just doing a hiatus. We're going to come back. And, you know, we're, we'll build off the uh, momentum from the Olympics. And, of course, the Olympics that year were when the 99ers, or a lot of them, you know, went out with a bang. Uh, they won another Olympic gold. And, you know, the, my memory of that is basically – uh, and I didn't see much of the games because, uh, you know, too much. There's so much going on at the Olympics. I was, um, I didn't go to Athens because uh, I had a newborn at home, and so I was working in the office and following things remotely uh, from beautiful Tyson's Corner. And but I, I remember the medal stand and seeing, you know, Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy, you know, singing uh, as going out as winners. And then there was just nothing, um, you know. If you look at women's soccer attendance um, for the national team games that year, I mean, you will see a lot of depressing numbers, a lot of, you know, four figures, sometimes low four figures. Uh, the only attention they got in those days was uh, ESPN that uh, had something called Page Two at that point, and they ran these, you know, hottest athlete uh, polls, and uh, Heather Mitts always did really well on them and Heather and she'd end up on magazine covers and so forth. And that was pretty much it. And the best player was Abby Wambach and people kind of knew who she was, but, but not really. And then, you know, jumped back into the spotlight in 2007 uh, when they, they got blasted by Brazil and uh, Hope Solo gave the infamous uh, interview uh, afterwards, you know, saying, you know, she had been benched uh, for Brian Scurry, and um, the reasoning they gave at the time was that uh, they thought Scurry was going to um, – thought Scurry had some sort of advantage against Brazil. Uh, the truth is without a professional league – and you know, this shows you one reason why professional leagues are so important – Scurry had barely played any competitive games in the in the three years preceding, and so there were reasons, kind of murky reasons, uh, off field reasons why Hope Solo was benched in that. And then, um, you know, she gave that interview after they got routed by Brazil, saying, "You know, I would have made those saves when, you know, at most she would have made two of them. I mean, they were played off the off the pitch that day." Um, you know, she would not have made a difference uh, in the long run. And then that was the publicity <laughs> women's soccer got. Uh, and really, 2000. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. For you, for you, I mean, the, you mean, that's you're now describing, obviously, that arguably we you could not have gotten a bigger burst of, you know, uh, 
of investment and excitement to get a league going. And for various reasons that you described, especially the uh, <laughs> the uh, unfettered spending, shall we say, on, on lots of different things, right? And then, boom, it collapses in three years. Um, in some respects, it's almost a repeat of some of the travails that the men went through, say, in the 1980s, early 90s, right? Um, because I, I would imagine as a women's soccer enthusiast, professionally, amateur, just overall the U.S. national team, et cetera, and I'm sure there's a generation of uh, largely girls, but not not exclusively, that, you know, kind of felt like a lot of young guys like myself back in the old NASL days when that went kaput, that they had been abandoned in some respects, right? The, the pinnacle, the great tournament, the memories went probably went to a bunch of games. You wanted to support your team. You saw it on television and all of a sudden it's gone. I mean, it has it, it, it had to be just short of depressing and or almost abandonment for everybody involved, fan, player, administrator, investors, for sure. Yeah, I, I think so. And of course, you know, post-September 11th and with the economic downturn after that, I mean, you know, men's soccer nearly went out again. I mean, they, they were, the U.S. was fairly close to going into 2002 with a professional women's league and not a professional men's league. Uh, but, you know, it was, I don't think, that would have helped WUSA uh, to have the men's league go. It was just, uh, it was just a difficult time and uh, a bit too much exuberance. And so, um, and yeah, it, it was just that their metrics were were too high. Uh, they were just expecting expecting this to be so much more than it was, and not realizing that you can't just build everything off of uh, off of one thing. I mean, you know, there's a reason you don't see, you know, a a massive explosion in professional volleyball or water polo after the Olympics. It, it's uh, there's just so much more to be done. But what you know, what I didn't know, and and we're, we're getting to that, we're getting to the exclamation point of the story. I promise. Um, what I, what I didn't recognize until fairly recently doing research for this uh, this conversation was that uh, WPS Women's Professional Soccer, which basically brought top tier. When the women's game for a second run uh, starting in 2009 actually truly had direct seeds from the remnants of the WUSA. I, I thought it was completely separate and or just another uh, attempt with a, a sort of a different set of approaches. But it does seem to me like there was some persistent, uh, I don't know, attempt to sort of keep whatever pieces that were sort of left behind of WUSA kind of alive and going and, and maybe to kind of get those embers to catch again. Um, is that your recollection and or your understanding of WPS's creation and rise too? Well, the, there was a little bit of continuity. Uh, Tanya Antonucci, who was essentially the founding uh, commissioner uh, of uh, WPS, had had come out through sort of a WSA, uh, you know, revived WSA initiative. And of course, you still had the Hendricks family uh, you mentioned uh, that they were still, you know, they were people who really founded the WSA, and they kept the Washington Freedom going all these all those years, and the Washington Freedom uh, went right back into WPS. Uh, but it really was very different, and some of the uh, um, one of the things that changed was that in the WUSA, you had the best players from everywhere in the world. I mean, you know, the, the top five German players were all in the WUSA. Uh, China was difficult, but at least one season they got, you know, they got Soon Lin. They got the five. They, they got 
most they, they got almost every international player that they wanted except for Hanna Jungberg uh, in Sweden. WPS was so much more modest than that. I mean, you know, the the freedom we're playing at the at the Maryland Soccer Plats with some bleachers added on instead of playing in RFK Stadium. Uh, it's just it was more managed expectations. Uh, they weren't going to get the big names over. Of course, European women's soccer was building up as well. So, it, to me, it was a different sort of entity, and also it was one that um, didn't have a particularly strong central office. I mean, I, I don't mean that it wasn't strong in the sense that the people weren't qualified. They certainly were. It, was, uh, it wasn't strong in the sense that they just didn't build up that central office, and that led to some problems. Um, you know, with I, I don't think the WSA would have had a situation uh, – we've had situations like you had with WPS where – after the first season, they hold you know they hold the draft for the second season, and then one of the team, the championship team, the Los Angeles Soul, folds immediately after that. Then you get a few games into the next season, and then you find out that St. Louis Athletica has been propped up by these investors that no one knew about, and they suddenly stopped writing checks, and that team folds partway into the season, you know, which you'd expect from kind of, you know, one of those indoor leagues that didn't really gain any traction. Uh, in, I guess, the 2000s or so. So, so by, by comparison, though, right, the, the financial, right, the, obviously they were much less, uh, I guess, solid. And But, but I might argue that's probably, that was a complete uh, 180 from the uh, the learned from experiences of, of the WSA, almost maybe to a fault where they were being more modest uh, and, and, and not recognizing that the uh, some some expense on some of the better players and and maybe uh, a few more credit checks on some of some of the owners. Right. No. Yeah. It it wasn't. Um. But you know, you still had the fact that people were spending a lot of money specifically on Marta. You know, it just you had to have Marta, and so but then you'd get Marta win a championship and then fold. <laughs> that just <laughs> that's just how it went. And um, you know, they didn't have. I don't know that they had any sort of salary uh, cap. I don't um, because you know the Washington Freedom were sold to Dan Borislow, who moved the team down to South Florida, named it Magic Jack after one of the uh, gizmos that he invented, and you know bought up a ton of talent. I mean, just had uh, you know. Um, almost like two-thirds of the players you would think of as the U.S. national team uh, there. And the Western New York Flash also spent pretty uh, heavily, and they had Marta and a lot of good international players. And, you know, you had the, – the teams were all pretty good because there were only six of them, and there's a lot of talent uh, to, to go around. But it was just erratic spending. You know, you'd have a couple of people spending a ton of money um, – in Magic Jack's case, they were spending a ton of money on the players and then and making them comfortable in nice condos and so forth, and then spending almost literally nothing on marketing. And uh, people didn't. There were um, good reporters, good soccer writers uh, in the Miami area or in South Florida who didn't know that there was this team forming in their backyards with Abby Wambach and Christy Rampone and Hope Solo. They, they didn't know because no one had told them. And it was only when you know, some of us who um, had been following the Washington Freedom and were saying, well, wait a minute, where are they going to play? It was when it became apparent that they were going to go to South Florida. It was only then that you know, we started to alert them saying, 
hey, did you know that you have uh, potentially the best women's soccer team in the world uh, practicing and getting ready for a season where you are? <laughs> it was it was really astounding. There's there's a whole nother episode. And, and Andy and I talked about that in our episode number two a little bit. But uh, oh, good. at some point, <laughs> yeah. I want to get much deeper and more granular to that story. But I, I, if I remember most of that conversation correctly, some of it, frankly, was born out of the fact that uh, the owner was more either a fan of the game or his kids were, or it, was, it wasn't sort of the, the most well-thought-out business decision, if that's a fair statement. Yeah, well, uh, Dan, um, he, he was an interesting guy, um, and you know, he refused to abide. But he basically didn't recognize league authority. On a lot of things, everything from you know the signage that you're going to use, the width of your field, um, uploading videos to this you know shared you know video system so that teams could scout each other. Yeah, he just didn't um, didn't abide by those rules, and so they were going to kick him out. And then he sued, and uh, that was yeah the narrative. Yeah, the narrative should not be that Dan Boroslav killed WPS. Uh, and I, by the way, I think that is the narrative that a lot of people erroneously, and, and I know I remember uh, Andy sort of mentioning this, but let's explore that a little bit because I think a lot of a bunch of people who were following it did think that he was sort of not only symptomatic, but maybe the actual reason as to why it folded. He gave the final push, or his lawsuits gave the final push. Uh, yeah, they the reason that they brought him on in the first place was because they weren't in particularly good shape. And the reason they were trying to work things out to keep him involved in the league somehow uh, was because they didn't have enough teams. They, they uh, temporarily lost their division one sanctioning from us soccer. And they had to go back and petition and um, to have, you know, basically five teams, you know, that, um, you know, that's not a healthy league, you know, lawsuit or not. I mean, they were, you know, when if Borislaw had bought the freedom and the freedom had gone under, they would have had five teams in 2011. And that is, that's not a good look. Now, granted the NASL bounced back from having five teams one year. Uh, but you know, in the modern marketplace, if you're going to have a five team league, uh, it's not a good look. So um, it, it certainly didn't help, but Borislaw was to some extent a symptom rather than a cause. Well, it's also interesting too, that, you know, the, the, the WPS, you know, uh, you know, was born off the success of uh, uh, the Olympics uh, success in um, uh, in 2008. Uh, but the the loss, though, of the Women's World Cup in 2009, uh, if I have those numbers correct. Right. Uh, no, they, the next Women's World Cup was 2011. My mistake. Sorry. Uh, and and they they lost the final, but it was a fantastic final and a fantastic tournament. And I went to when I went to WPS games after that World Cup, it was a huge boom. I mean, it was you know autograph lines that staked all the way through Harvard. I mean, you know, Andy Crossley would probably tell you that you know having auto, just people lined up for autographs as far as the eye could see, um, because uh, they really jumped in there. So that was um, one of the big tragedies for WPS was that they were already in such bad shape that that boost couldn't save them because if it if it had who knows what 2012 would have looked like and I get my women's world cup uh mixed up because 2007 was the one where they came in third place and that was obviously that led into 2008 with the win and and the, the olympics and then so that was a, that was a certainly a good boost and and not a bad thing to have sort of going into the league but you know I distinctly remember uh there was a point in time during the course of the season 
uh, and I don't, I guess this was during the Women's World Cup, where I guess the tournament had already started or was just just getting ready to get underway, and the news came that uh, that WPS would not go on after after that current season. Um, and, and I remember, uh, and I have to dig for some tape and some video of this, but it, you know, talk about it's almost like a punch to the gut, right? Because here they are, the women's team, you know, uh, not defending their championship, but arguably the favorites again, the prohibitive favorites, and uh, and the league, you know, kind of still sticking around. Um, it's almost uh, it, it, the mixed emotions had to be very significant for most of the players that were not only on the on the on you know that shared both a professional gig in WPS as well as uh, their time on the stage in the in the tournament. You may be thinking of the summer of 2012 because that's what the WPS you know officially went out of business uh, during the summer of 2012 and it would have been somewhere around uh, the time of the Olympics because uh, they, they made it through 2011. At the end of 2011, I mean, I was at that WPS championship game and no one knew that that was going to be the last game. They actually held a draft uh, in 2012 uh, and they thought they were going to be able to keep going and then they suspended the season uh, and, you know, not really to anyone's surprise was when everything was going back and forth with Boris Lau and U.S. soccer. And then they, so they, they suspended it and it was sort of an afterthought when they actually said, yeah, we're not coming back. Um, because, you know, most leagues that take a season off, they're not coming back. I mean, you know that from indoor soccer, you know, it's just, oh, we're just going on hiatus, but we'll retool and come back stronger. Yeah, no, you're not. Um, it just doesn't work that way. All right. So now I'm getting my events mixed up because, you know, that was probably 2012, the Summer Olympics then. That's, that's where I was probably remembering some of that, right? Where, uh, But regardless, though, I mean, here, this is now a women's U.S. national team that has spent at this point, you know, good 10, 15, almost 20 years essentially becoming the elite team in the world. I mean, not not winning every single time. But certainly, always being strong and always generally being regarded as the, if not you know, uh, not only the favorite, but the, the sort of the odds on to win. But the the demise of of WPS. I mean, you you don't sense that when WPS played its final game uh, in Rochester with the uh, the Flash winning that that people on the field and off the field they felt that they were going to come back next year. With, with solid sort of feeling of such, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was 100%, uh, but uh, people weren't, certainly didn't feel like they were at a funeral. Um, you know, it was a, a pretty nice occasion, and I think people were were thinking, yeah, I, I mean, there were positive signs here and there uh, throughout the season, and then uh, throughout the off-season in January, they actually had a deal announced at one point. They said, well, uh, okay, Borislav's going to field an exhibition team, and they're going to be like the Harlem Globetrotters and go go play so he can have a team but not be in the league, and then the league can go on. And And so they thought they had this deal, but uh, that in reality it simply wasn't going to work. And so so that was into 2012, you know, into January when people still had you know some some inkling, some hope that it was going to go on. So when May May 2012 comes around, uh, were you surprised that the WPS folded effectively, or were you surprised, not shocked, or or 
or were you? Not surprised in the least. I mean, again, you go on hiatus, you know, for a year, which which WPS had. Uh, I mean, and that announcement was in January. Uh, I, I remember it vividly because it was, you know, I, it was the the one time in my life I've attempted to ski, <laughs> and so I I failed miserably at that. Went into lunch, checked my BlackBerry at the time, and. Uh, who had written me, but Dan Boroslaw saying, so you heard about WPS and that was the suspension of the season. And so I, I never thought that they were going to come back uh, once they suspended the season. I mean, they, they, they simply just weren't strong enough. Just like I never really thought the WSA was going to come back, you know, even though they put, put together these exhibitions so you could see some version of the Washington freedom playing some version of the Atlanta beat. Um, and, you know, nice events and so forth, but I never thought they were going to come back. And I, I feel like once leads go away, yeah, they, they're gone. Uh, you don't come back from that. Okay. Well, that you could not have set the table better than with that comment because 2012, we're looking at May, it's official now. Uh, and this is the heart of, of, of your book. Uh, it, it would seem that Two strikes and, you know, it, it would be folly, right, I think, for most outside observers to even fathom the idea of trying again. But yet, the seeds of what now exists as the legitimate and arguably uh, solidifying even further NWSL that we enjoy today uh, were really sown, I guess, in the pieces that sort of were left over. Around this, uh, around 2012 or so, what what happened, both immediately as well as sort of, you know, in the months that followed, that kind of gave people sort of reason to keep going and not to give up this quote unquote fight. Well, a couple of people just refused to give up, and that included the people running the Boston Breakers and uh, Western New York. And uh, Chicago Red Stars, and the Red Stars had actually dropped out of WPS and were playing amateur soccer in WPSL, uh, but still a, a, you know, a fairly strong organization. So those teams all said, well, we're going to keep playing. Uh, let's see if we can put a lead together. And uh, so they worked with the WPSL, uh, and WPSL had – You want to explain to WPSL because that's uh, – yeah. to our audience who may not sort of understand the – quote-unquote, soccer pyramid, especially on the women's side. Right. Well, the WPSL and the W League, not the Australian W League, but uh, the league that was run by the USL, which is the organization that today runs the second-tier men's division, the championship, and then the third-tier League 1, and then an amateur league called League 2. So the W League and the WPSL, both almost exclusively amateur, they're, they're... uh, there actually was one professional team in the W League, and it was actually the forerunner of the Western New York Flash. Um, so those leads, the W League, they've both been around for for a long time. And so the W League, you know, especially in the 2000s, was the only thing going. And there were a handful of players who kept going in that and, in fact, kind of enhanced their case to be on the national team in those days. Uh, the, the prime example and she's a commentator now for NWSL games, is Lori Lindsay, uh, who worked, her, you know, kept playing for the Washington Freedom as an amateur and um, managed to stay in the game and uh, work her way onto the 
you know, onto the team. So those leagues had already performed kind of a valuable role um, in, you know, keeping soccer going in the 2000s. It just, but again, it wasn't much. Uh, so in 2012, those uh, remaining teams, or you know, the remnants of WPS, uh, got together with w- WPSL and said, "Hey, you know, can we take some of your strongest teams and form a league with them? We'll form a couple of new teams as well." And they wound up with eight teams. And so you had this thing with a couple of pro teams, a bunch of amateur teams, though in some cases professionally run. And there's your league, WPSL Elite. But now, if you look back, though, right, today's uh, National Women's Soccer League, NWSL, actually dials itself back to being founded in 2012. So it seems like there's been a little, I don't know, uh, uh, fuzziness or, or fuzzing, I guess, of of names or origin, or was this kind of sort of in the process? I guess the initial season, I guess, was 2013 for the NWSL. So I guess you're describing 2012 as being somewhat of a, I don't know, sort of a hodgepodge uh, uh, marriage by necessity, I guess, sort of keep things kind of uh, the heart beating, so to speak. Right. Well, the teams that had that had been professional teams, WPS, that's Boston, Western New York, and Chicago, were all part of the movement to launch this new league, the NW, uh, which became the NWSL. And there were, you know, r- reports of how things were going to look over the course of the summer, and they evolved here and there. You know, oh, we're going to have 12 teams in this sort of setup. No way, we're going to have eight in this kind of setup. Uh, but Boston, Western New York, and Chicago uh, were going to be involved. And, um, Sky Blue took that didn't play in 2012, but they came back in 2013. So there actually was a fair amount of uh, continuity in clubs between uh, WPS and NWSL, and you know that's an, was an important thing in uh, of the 2012 summer was that you know, you had clubs who provided uh, some continuity, and so uh, and not only the teams from WPSL, but there was a team. Uh, in the W League, uh, that was uh, DC United Women. They had a very loose affiliation with DC United, the Major League Soccer team. Um, they they wore DC United jerseys and so forth. Uh, that team became the Washington Spirit uh, of the NWSL. You know, same owners, same staff, but built up a bit for the professional game. And uh, and you know, those teams also made an effort to keep a lot of those players. I mean, uh, the Chicago Red Stars. Uh, to this day, have some players uh, who uh, were with them uh, in the 2012 season. So it it provided some continuity, even though you know they were playing in WPS in 2011, WPSL Elite or the W League in 2012, and the NWSL in 2013. Uh, there were some organizations that stayed intact. A couple of things strike me here in this sort of third attempt, right? And and I guess to the outsider, it seems like folly. But um, number one, um, it seems like uh, the WPSL and then what became the NWSL. Uh, if if the WPS keep keep uh, keep with me on the uh, the acronyms. If if the WPS didn't want to repeat the profligate spending of the WUSA, right? The WPSL soon to become or soon to evolve into the NWSL, which we know today, didn't want to be the WPS in terms of 
their spending, right? So in, in many respects, the investment commitment seems to be lowering, not rising uh, as this third league comes about. Um, wise, I guess, uh, cost controlled, sure. Uh, but uh, arguably, is, is that any way to kind of get a, another pro league up and running? It would seem kind of head scratching to me, or maybe not because so much money had been wasted the first two times. It's kind of like, yeah, there's a classic George Carlin bit uh, called A Place for My Stuff, where he says, you know, you have a house with all this stuff in it. Then you go somewhere on vacation and you take a smaller version of your house. You take all of this stuff. Then let's say you go on vacation and you meet your friend and says, and the friend says, hey, let's go spend the night over at this person's place. And you take a third version of, of So, yeah, it did. It got smaller. There's like a third version of your stuff. And NWSL in its first season uh, paid a lot of players four-figure salaries. You know, they're all making less than 10000 Uh So, I mean, it was um, – and, of course, you know, MLS had – just come out of a, a long spell of paying some players barely five figures. Uh, so it wasn't that unusual. But yeah, they were, um, it really was dialing back the spending as much as they possibly could uh, to, to get things going in the NWSL. And um, it, I think the, uh, the main argument for it is that it worked. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're still around and they've outlived. Uh, the other two leads combined at this point. The other thing that strikes me, though, was and is, or was, certainly was at the at the outset of this, was is the involvement of uh, the United States Soccer Federation, or what's today known colloquially as as U.S. Soccer. Uh, it, it, in my recollection, U.S. Soccer was sort of instrumental in at least uh, leaning in to figure out ways, constructively, perhaps, and maybe. Uh, previously at arm's length to somehow keep the women's game up and running. And, and uh, arguably because there's certainly a meal ticket involved, right? And that's the women's national team, right? Which has been, you know, outperforming and, and we can get into the legalities of all of it and, and why they're, you know, certainly outperforming what the men's have done, men have done. But uh, I guess the point is that this strikes me as being, if I have my research correct, kind of the first real involvement of certainly the Federation and I guess maybe, you know, begs the question beyond that, where was the, the Federation before in the first two attempts and or where was Major League Soccer in terms of maybe being a support? I mean, you mentioned a couple of informal things, but, you know, you would think that that could be a stabilizer uh, in the past as well. There were some um, someone should really write a book on uh, the, what was the WSA and get into uh, there was essentially a bit of rivalry uh, with MLS, and there were there was talk that MLS was going to do its own thing uh, at some point. Uh, but you know, MLS at that time really didn't have the stability uh, to do that, and they real they didn't make any sort of investment in the women's game until the NWSL launched in 2013, and the one team that had a lot of resources and then drew five figure crowds was in Portland where you know, the Portland, the Portland Timbers started the Portland Thorns. They're the same organization. Uh, and you know, it's almost seamless. It's like, you know, okay, the, who's playing this weekend, the Timbers. Okay. We're going, who's playing this weekend, the Thorns. Okay. We're going. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of continuity there, a lot of, uh, synergy, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, it's worked out really well for them in terms of us soccer i mean 
yeah, generally a federation doesn't want to try to run the league. Um, you know, that's not how it works in you know most countries. Um, it actually kind of works that way in Australia, um, but that's I've read a little bit. I'm not an expert. I just know that it's a little bit a little bit tied together there. I believe both on the men's and women's side. And so yeah, U.S. soccer said at this point, look, we've we need a professional women's league or we're going to fall behind. And I think that was evident. And again, we go back to Brianna Scurry in 2007 being thrown in uh, in the semifinals of the World Cup, having played only a handful of competitive games because the only place she could play was on the national team. And Hope Solo played the vast majority of the games. So, um, so yeah, they needed that. They needed to develop a deeper talent pool. And, you know, I, for, for this book, I did spreadsheets where I traced um, where players went. And I saw, you know, let's take all the players, all the American players who were in the WSA in 2003 and all the players who had been capped, some of whom were still in college in 2003. And let's see how many of them stayed in the game until WPS started in 2009. And they lost, by my count, about 100 professional players, and including maybe about 30 who had been capped. Uh, so they, that was devastating. They really didn't want that to happen again. In fact, you go look back, the U.S. team of 2007 and 2008 – I mean 2008, they overachieved. Um, it was you know, Pia Sunhaga's brilliance and a couple of people just having sort of uh, – you know, career uh, career summers. Um, you know, sort of like uh, you know, Tony Santa two thousand two is Angela Hughley's two thousand eight, uh, and that that really got them through. They you know, it was perhaps one pe- the one period where you could say the U.S. was not demonstrably the best team in the world. Um, you know, they were probably not as good as Brazil and probably not as good as Germany, and so. They knew that they had to do something. They had to have a professional league. They had to keep players in the game. And so U.S. soccer did step up, and they provided – they essentially started it out of the federation offices. And I went to the first NWSL draft, and it was uh, Neil Beathy, the U.S. soccer communications director, running back and forth between this conference room and this room where you know the six of us who were covering women's soccer at the time uh, were there anxiously awaiting the word on each draft pick. And U.S. soccer still to this day subsidizes uh, salaries for a specific set of players – um, you know, twenty-some players, depending on the year and the the type of contract they're, the type of CBA they have at the time, uh, they pay those salaries so that the owners of the individual clubs don't have to. Well, and and that you know that's not unimportant, right? That that subsidization, right? And and I I would imagine that that you know as the W excuse me the NWSL uh, continues to get stronger, and and literally this is as timely as today's headlines, and that. A new franchise uh, with some star power and some venture capital behind it uh, now being announced in Los Angeles to bring the league up to, I guess, it's nine franchises now. Uh, essentially, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, gives, I guess, uh, players and administrators a bit of hope here, right? I mean, th- that that they can, quote unquote, make a living at this. Because, I, you know, you're mentioning sort of the 
intestinal fortitude is the term that comes to mind. I don't know if it's the right one, but I mean, you're mentioning how many players sort of left in between the WUSA and the WPS. And I don't even know what your spreadsheet says for, you know, the the demise in, in early 2012 of, of the WPS, right. And how many sort of got so disillusioned that they gave up on the game and quote unquote, you know, picked up to pick up the rest of their lives, so to speak. Right. Cause at the end of the day, you know, being a full-time only professional women's soccer player, hell, even being a professional men's soccer player for most players in MLS, right, is still not a viable full-time job without subsidy, without endorsements, without some other for, or part-time job or whatever. Um, you know, and I think that's the dream of everybody, women, men, everybody, right, is that not only to increase and solidify the, the the talent, you know, for quadrennial tournaments like the Olympics and the, and the World Cups, but also, frankly, to make it a viable, you know, profession that actually youngsters and 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 those with dreams can actually make a living out of this in in, in the world of pro sports, where arguably it's it's overdue in this country. Yeah, I mean, MLS went, you know, many years. Uh, Losing the occasional player. I mean, there was one player who was drafted one year and didn't report because he he chose to go to med school. Uh, I remember a player leaving to become a dentist. Uh, uh, Scott Garlick abruptly quit playing right before a season because he had uh, opportunities at commercial real estate. Uh, Troy Perkins, D.C. United goalkeeper, had a second job at a bank. And uh, then I remember writing a feature – uh, during my USA Today tenure, probably maybe 2007 or so, a player leaving to go to the priesthood. Uh, although that that was probably not really a financial decision. There was a lot more that went into that. Uh, so, yeah, they kept losing players there. Um, but it, my spreadsheet would show many, many fewer players leaving the game, leaving women's soccer uh, at that time. It shows a lot of players who stayed in, and um, some of them you know, have gone on to be on the national team. I highlighted a couple of players. and uh, Allie Long, who's on the, who has been on the national team now for a while, um, she, she had also played in France, but came back and played a little bit in, uh, for the New York Fury in 2012. Uh, the big success story is McCall Zerboni, who, uh, when WPS fell apart, was thinking, well, I, I, I might quit now. But Western New York continued as a professional team and said, come here, you know, come stay with us and play through 2012. And she did. And she went on to NWSL and made the national team at age, I believe, 30. So, you know, that's a story that you couldn't have written uh, before all this. And today you have players who have played professionally for you know, close to a decade. I mean, there are a handful of, there are some players in the NWSL today who can trace their professional histories all the way back uh, to 2009. You know, some of them who were, who have never been on the national team. I mean, it's one thing to stay in the game when you've been on the national team and you get national team money and you're, you, okay, you also play professionally, but you're, you know, the national team is really what keeps you going. There are people who've been playing professional soccer without being on the national team you know, for a decade now. And that is such a difference. That's such a change, especially because someone like him, McCall Zerboni, might come in and challenge for a spot on the national team, which can only make that team better. For sure. Um, 
All right. Well, I, I want to get into sort of your vision of what what this league is uh, likely to uh, to see and experience uh, going forward, because it's clearly on solid footing. And you mentioned the fact that it's outlasted its two predecessors uh, and and seems to be uh, fairly stable, uh, a relative statement in the world of COVID-19. But uh, I, I want to just maybe circle back on one sort of other area. We mentioned the subsidy role that U.S. soccer has played in this and, and arguably, you know, without it, uh, you could make the argument that it would have been harder. But I, I do want to just maybe underline now what I, in some respects almost feels like, geez, why didn't why wasn't this pursued earlier on? You mentioned a little few of the reasons, but um, you mentioned Portland and we certainly see in Houston with the dash uh, backed by the MLS uh, uh, team in in in, uh, in Houston, the Dynamo. Um, it feels to me like MLS and the NWSL truly have some strong partnership opportunities, uh, both now as well as going forward, and, and, and maybe being more of a nurturing partner or operational resource uh, sharer and or subsidizer in their own way, whether it's the facilities or the training or whatever. Uh, why now for MLS and certain inv- pockets of involvement? And perhaps is there more collaboration to come uh, maybe overdue and or uh, uh, inevitable. I think that they had to overcome a bit of suspicion, uh, some mutual suspicion to reach this point. And yeah, you know, we have to remember that back in the early 2000s, I mean, the, uh, the there's a book on the 1999 uh, women's soccer team that called The Girls of Summer that's being uh, that's been commissioned for a movie. And in that book, the author Jerry Longman from the New York Times. Um, Set is talking about you know sports leagues and or you know the uh, women's soccer compared to men's soccer and says well in soccer you know you, the women are the NBA and the men are the WNBA uh, and you know that that's it was a bit short sighted it was a bit getting kind of kept up in the rush of 1999 but certainly women's soccer <laughs> was doing quite well uh, at that time and perhaps figuring you know we don't need the men. Uh, and also, if you look globally, it took a very long time for you know clubs to catch on to where they were. It, there were a lot of women's teams that were affiliated with a men's team, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And you know, there, you'd always hear horror stories out of Brazil. Well, oh well, our club just signed this big you know big time men's player. We're paying him all this money, so we're going to have to cut something. Well, there goes the women's team, and so. That sort of fear, you know, has has gone in there. Um, so you had to overcome some suspicion, saying, "Okay, well, oh, the Portland Timbers want to run a team. Well, what happens when you know they have they have to make a hard choice on resources? Are the women necessarily going to lose out?" Uh, I think that that's been overcome. I mean, it's still a little questionable. I mean, Houston and Orlando uh, are you'd have to say a mixed bag. Uh, they've there are good reports out of there and, and some not so good reports out of there. Uh, it seems to be working pretty well in Utah, uh, which is which is hosting the NWSL's bubble tournament right now. Yeah, the first um, the first pro league really to come back to action in the United States. It was yeah, it was the first professional league to come back uh, into action, and they've had this bubble that worked pretty well, except for the fact that they had to turn away a team uh, that was the Orlando team uh, that had some positive tests and some questionable uh, quarantine behavior. 
And so they, just like MLS, had a couple of teams that haven't been able to participate because of positive tests and so forth. Uh, the NWSL had one, but the Utah Royals, affiliated with Real Salt Lake, uh, have hosted this tournament. The uh, they've played some games at the Real Monarch sta- uh, Stadium. They're playing the last games at. Uh, I forget the name of it now. It used to be the Riot, uh, you know, the, the great stadium in Sandy, Utah. Yeah, it used to be called Rio Tinto. They have another sponsor now. Yeah, yeah. I, off top, I can't remember who it is. Always be Rio Tinto to me, just because it was, that was what they had in the beginning. Well, it's, it's the Riot. That's what they call it. It was in the song, you know, here in the here at the Riot. And so, and also, you know, the North Carolina Courage uh, are affiliated with the USL team, you know, the uh, North Carolina FC and the Courage uh, have been the dominant team. You know, you know, it was the Western New York Flash, and they finally kind of gave up the ghost in Western New York, sold the team, and they moved to North Carolina, and has been the dominant team of the last three or four years uh, in in the NWSL. So now those partnerships are working, and you know, the new team in Los Angeles does it. It's not officially going to be part of LAFC, but you have at least one fairly prominent. Uh, owner involved with both, and it's Mia Ham. So uh, there, there will probably be some, you know, interplay between LAFC and this new uh, Los Angeles team. Uh, so yeah, it just took a while for that trust to build. And, and it would also yeah. the theme that that I think that financially too, there seems to be movement uh, in the game generally and sports uh, overall too around uh, maybe entertaining. Uh, venture or private equity investments uh, versus families or uh, consortium of of investors. Uh, the uh, the notion of owning and or operating or running uh, multiple teams as uh, as Red Bull does and and a number of other entities. It seems uh, both uh, across the pond and and here and maybe perhaps that becomes uh, a bit of sort of a uh, you know again a shared services thing, right? Uh, we, we've seen pro leagues and teams. The Lamar Hunts of the world, right, where you sort of take all of your various entities or what Ted Leonsis does in, in, in Washington, right? It becomes actually a strength because you have uh, the same resources that essentially become uh, though the, the backing for one, two, three or four different entities, uh, n- you know, necessitating uh, or sort of eliminating, frankly, the need for replicating of, of efforts and stuff. But I, I think it's also interesting as well, not just financially, but uh, and perhaps uniquely in this case, and maybe this is sort of my second to last question. You know, we mentioned sort of arguably the uh, the, sal- the, uh, the the saving graces, I guess, of U.S. soccer's involvement back in 2012 to kind of kind of get uh, conversations and or some some resources behind sort of, if you will, saving the women's pro game here. But um, you know, that relationship between the women's uh, uh, players is certainly uh, strained since then, right? Uh, and then some. Uh, the role of U.S. soccer is not necessarily, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, strong and or fu- warm and fuzzy as it was maybe back then when they kind of kept, kept things uh, together. Um, do you see that U.S. soccer and this NWSL, I, I want to say that on a collision course, but how, how do you, it seems to me like this is the place where the tensions uh, expressed by the women's uh, World Cup teams and their desire for equal and and then some pay uh, may sadly kind of uh, you know uh, be found on a more you know persistent basis because of its professional nature. Yeah. Well, it 
it has been at times a contentious relationship, and I urge people to read uh, Caitlin Murray's uh, book on the the history of the U.S. women's team. And you know, after the 1999 World Cup, there were certainly different uh, visions on what to do next. And then you know, it was Julie Foudy and a few other players who took kind of a hard line and said, "No, we're we need to do things this way." And that there was uh, almost. Well, actually, at one point, they did have replacement players go to, you know, a friendly tournament uh, at one point, 2000. And, you know, they were threatening, you know, all sorts of action then. Um, then the interesting thing is that a collective bargaining agreement that the women signed back in the mid-2000s when they had no leverage at all, uh, it kept going through 2012 they did not negotiate a full-fledged new CBA leading at the end of 2012 into 2013. They came up with, a, with what they called a memorandum of understanding that basically just took the previous CBA and shoved it forward with new numbers. That is the root of the problem because that deal was not that good. And so if you go back, um, if you go back and start digging, you know, five years into the past, the, the memorandum of understanding went through uh, the end of 2016. And the lawsuit that we have now is um, the carryover from, you know, first of all, a strike threat and then a petition to the Equal, Opportun Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 2016 before the Olympics. And so they went to the EEOC, and you have to – you can't sue while you're going through the EEOC. The EEOC finally, after a couple of years, issued what's called a right to sue, and that's when the lawsuit was filed. So um, so it really stems back the, – the current women's collective bargaining agreement still has a couple of holes in it, and part of it had to do with the fact that – Things got really contentious. This uh, Hope Solo brought in this kind of barracuda of a lawyer, Rich Nichols, and um, you know, then they eventually fired him. And um, some of the clauses in that CBA just look kind of petty. And so, you know, um, if you're going to pay, you know, this this amount to the men's team if they lose a friendly, well, we're going to pay just a little bit less to the women if they lose a friendly. Um, yeah, there are some apples to apples things in there that aren't very good. It's it's generally difficult to compare the deals uh, just because, first of all, the women are far more likely to win a World Cup uh, than the men. You know, if the men won, then you know, it's sort of like everyone just sort of, uh, you know, sign blank checks and who knows what would happen and, and, you know, worry about it later just because it would just be this astounding moment. Uh, whereas the women, you don't want to say routinely uh, win it, but they win in a lot. And so, but the collect, the current collective bargaining agreement, you know, U.S. soccer had a fairly winning argument, which is that, you know, we – uh, sent over the course of the new collective bargaining agreement, have paid the women more than we paid the men. And yes, it's due in part to a um, to an unlikely series of events, um, including the U.S. men not qualifying. But of course, if the U.S. men had qualified, their revenue would have been so much better. So, it's not the current collective bargaining agreement 
didn't prompt the lawsuit. It was the old one. And it's what they signed in 2005 when they had no leverage at all. And then what the you know, CBA 1.1 that they signed in 2013, uh, where they, you know, they didn't, it, it wasn't much better uh, than the old one. I, so, I guess the question in there yeah. is, do, do you think the NWSL could get sidetracked or distracted or otherwise by this still festering issue between U.S. soccer and uh, the women players? You know, at, at this point, I don't think so. Um, and part of it has to do with, um, I mean, I don't think it would have been an issue under Carlos Cordero. Just, I, it, it just doesn't seem likely um, because I think, you know, he had been vice president before he was president and understood uh, the importance of this league. And of course, now, since Cordero has left, the president is Cindy Cohn, formerly Cindy Parlow, um, you know, Hall of Fame women's soccer player. Uh, and so, not insignificantly, a woman, which could be right. <laughs> arguably partially the, you know, forward leaning solution going forward that that could be more helpful than hurtful for sure. Right. And, you know, she isn't going to give the women every dollar they've asked for, because uh, unfortunately for the women's national team lawyers, Cindy Cohn can also do math. And she knows that if you paid every cent that the women are looking for, which basically is predicated on the notion of you know paying women the same World Cup bonus that the men would have gotten, even though the FIFA prize money has such a wide disparity. You know, the the women got two million in 2015, four million in 2019, whereas the men, uh, I remember the, I think I remember the 2018 figure off the top of my head. France got 38 million dollars. So, what are you know, what? Right. So what the women are asking for right now is essentially, you know, 600 percent to a thousand percent of the FIFA prize money that U.S. soccer got. And, you know, you could have said a few uh, a couple of years ago, well, U.S. soccer is sitting on one hundred fifty million dollar uh, pile of assets. Well, they got a lot of that from the Copa America Centenario and they um they're trying to spend that money on making things better down the road because here's a little thing that a lot of people don't notice. The U.S. women in youth international tournaments are not doing well right now. They have not done well for the last, I uh, will say, six to eight years. Uh, so developmentally, we're falling behind. You know, uh, Every other country is starting to catch up. And you know, to some extent – you want that to happen. I mean, there aren't any, you know, no one who's involved with women's soccer wants the game to be weak in Germany or England or Brazil uh, or any place else. You know, it's good to have competition. Uh, you don't want it to be like women's softball, where it was just the US and Japan every year and they finally cut it from the Olympics. Uh, they've since reinstated it. But, you know, that's, um, they, they want women's soccer to thrive internationally at will. But that means it's a challenge to spend on development. So the question you end up with is do you want money to go into better programs, you know, better coaching education so that um, people, so youth players, boys and girls, are getting you know, good soccer experience and building for the future? Or do you want to go back retroactively under the set of circumstances no one could have predicted, which is that you know, the women would ask for you know, $25 million bonus – 
uh, for you know, against two million dollar prize money, and say, "Oh, well, here you go, Megan Rapino. Uh, take your money and build a nice beach house, I guess." And uh, sorry, we're going to have to cut all our coaching education programs. Well, you know, that's that's a, that's a really good point because, uh, and that's where I guess the final question comes into play, right? The the role of NWSL going forward, right? Because, you know, that developmental uh, infrastructure, right, uh, that needs to be is probably more important than ever. As to your point, other countries, quote unquote, catch up to us. I mean, it's ironic that as you know, we talk about soccer in the, in the United States, it's, it's actually been the case with the United States being the leader in the world in, in the in the women's game, right? And now, like we're still trying to do on the men's side, other countries catching up. And arguably now is the time where you need to strengthen and and it it are not not so arguably uh, uh, cements the notion that a uh, stable uh, and hopefully successful, professional league needs to be part of that infrastructure and god forbid gives the youth that are training and are hopefully improving in competition something to strive for god forbid with a paying wage and a and a career uh, at least period of time a salary uh, scenario that makes it worth their while and, and and they aspire to versus Nothing being sort of at the end of the rainbow except for a quadrennial event that may or may not pay them, by the way, equally or then so. So the question in wrapped up in there is, as the sort of final uh, sort of uh, query is, what do you see the NWSL becoming in the years to come? Uh, what do you think its future is? Uh, COVID-19 notwithstanding, right? So let's take that out of the equation. That's obviously a, a you know, a a big hit for any, anything in pro sports uh, generally. But how do you think the NWSL, assuming all things being equal, uh, how do you feel its position is and women's pro soccer this time around going forward? Fairly strong? No? I think so. And you know, if you look at the MLS trajectory, it was uh, – well, I mean, first of all, it like uh, they blew their expectations out of the water in the first season uh, and then dropped and then – you know, bad circumstances in 2001 and nearly dropping out. But uh, really, the model that they intended to follow from the start and you know redoubled on in 2002 was slow growth. You know, it's like, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's build up. Um, you know, we're going to gradually pay players more and so forth. And then you start to hit a tipping point uh, or you hit several tipping points. And, you know, having the confidence to go out and sign David Beckham while he was still relatively young you know a little bit past his peak but you know not 38 and then um then you had this explosion of new teams you have all that's being spent on incoming players i mean you know this didn't get much publicity but the you know uh the atlanta united went down and bought pretty much the best player in south america and beating martinez and they um so that the question is has the NWSL hit that tipping point now, and um, what does that look like? Now, the ratings for the first game of this Challenge Cup that they're doing, this abbreviated season, uh, were through the roof. I mean, it's 500-some thousand, um, which you know, would be considered very good for MLS and you know, good for Premier League broadcast in the U.S. as well. Uh, there. You could have the question of whether some of that was the novelty factor of the fact that, hey, we can finally watch a live sport. But I think it does show 
how seriously people do take women's soccer at this point that you know it it, it wasn't you know the, um i don't know if you know this but the pro pickleball association is also back in action it did not get 500,000 viewers on cbs the way the nwsl did um so what i don't think that you know the nwsl was suddenly going to become the equivalent of, of mls we've yet to see that happen you know we it's a strange thing with women's sports where we can see that in individual sports, right? I mean, there's not much different. You know, who's the most famous tennis player in the U.S. right now? It's Serena Williams. You know, who's the most, who was the most famous skier uh, in the U.S. for a long time? Probably the most famous skier in the world, actually, is Lindsey Vonn and then Michaela Schifrin. And, you know, those sports don't really distinguish that much between men and women They're in terms of the resources. I mean, sometimes they do, um, but in a lot of cases, they're fairly even. We've yet to see that happen with team sports. Um, at least yeah, you can make the argument w- yeah. WNBA is still very much a subsidy of of the NBA, despite lots of uh, opportunities and, and successes, but still very much in the shadow. Um, but yet it's still, it's around, it's been around for 20 years, right? So that is, that's saying absolutely something. But, you know, I, I think many uh, investors would have thought it would have been bigger by now uh, and maybe more uh, standalone capable uh, by now too. So yeah, maybe well, one thing constructive can, there. One thing you can say about the WNBA is that, it's bigger than the women's basketball world championship. Maybe not bigger than the Olympics, but you know, um, the women's basketball uh, world championship. No one, no one knows that. But people still know who Sue Bird is. You know, even aside from the fact that she's now with with Megan Rapinoe, uh, people know who Elena Deladon is of the WNBA champion Washington Mystics. You mentioned Ted Leonsis earlier. Leonsis got a ring with the Mystics and with the Capitals. So. Um, so at, at least WNBA players can be known. Um, Soccer is a little different just because you know the NWSL players that are going to be household names are also you know are household names from the World Cup and not necessarily the NWSL. But you know, um, I think the NWSL can get can be bigger than the WNBA if it isn't already. Um, I think it could be something that. You know, right now, only one team in the league averages more than 10,000 uh, per game, and that's in Portland. Um, I could see it getting to where there are multiple teams that average 10,000 and see see it getting, you know, maybe not 500,000 every game, but you know, maybe 200, 250,000, which, which sustained MLS for a long time. It was enough that MLS was able to uh, demand a rights fee. Um, you know, it didn't demand the rights fee at the beginning, um, but uh, now it does. So I, I think that's the, I think that's the foreseeable future. And I, I think it looks pretty bright. I, I think that um, I think people have a little bit of a long enough memory that if we can all get back to normal next year and the NWSL can play a regular season, uh, you'll also have the hype of going into the Olympics if the Olympics happen. Um, but I, I do think women's soccer has made enough of an impression now uh, that, um, it, again, I, I said that, you know, sorry earlier, that it feels different this time. And I think part of it had to do with if you watch the attendance at NWSL games uh, after the, the World Cup, um, 
they got that boost, but then they sustained that boost better than we've seen in the past. So I I think you're going to see it stronger than it has been. And right now it's solid. I, I think they're going to go from solid to strong would be the best way I would put it. Well, so let's put a a, a push pin in this and, and let's revisit this if, uh, if you're willing in your game uh, in – Perhaps uh, the fall of uh, of next year, if there is indeed a, a summer Olympics, and there is hopefully uh, a women's uh, world uh, excuse me a women's gold medal for the United States in that competition, and at the very least, let's also soft circle uh, 2023, right, which is when the next women's World Cup in uh, Australia and New Zealand, we think and hope, um, because I would argue that that's going to also be a good benchmark for uh, how successful and frankly how um, much of a contribution uh, to the development and all those other things that we talked about earlier uh, hopefully shows continued strength in the, uh, in the U.S.'s performance uh, in that tournament as well. Yeah, it, it's hard to say because, you know, um, we're getting to where with, with women's soccer competitions, it's kind of like the NCAA. If you look at the NCAA basketball tournament, um, the favorite in a given year, the odds are never better than what, maybe three to one, because there's so many teams that can win it. Um, I thought the U.S. was the best team in the 2019 tournament, in the 2019 Women's World Cup. They were also lucky. They got a couple of honestly bad calls in their favor uh, that helped them, and they also got um, a free kick from Megan Rapino that was well struck, but just kind of managed to sneak through and take an odd bounce, and that affected the the course of that game. Um, so, you know, you're going to need a bit, and you could argue that uh, it was the opposite in 2016 when the U.S. Uh, was eliminated before the semifinals for the first time ever. First time the women hadn't been on a podium at either the World Cup or the Olympics. Um, so. You know, it's one of those things where 2021, you know, a bad bounce here and they could be out in the quarterfinals again. Um, you know, it's um, it's kind of like the the last Spinal Tap drummer said, you know, the law of averages, you know, uh, should dictate that eventually a Spinal Tap drummer is going to survive. Um, and eventually the U.S. is going to lose again. And um, it could be that in a couple of years, by, you know, by 2023, they might not be the best team in the world. They're they're a pretty old team right now. And again, you look at youth soccer tournaments, youth international tournaments around the world right now. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be fun to watch. All right, our thanks to Bo. Fascinating stuff. So much more to uncover. The WUSA continues to fascinate me. Uh, God forbid we'll have uh, some folks who are directly involved with that. I'd love to have John Hendricks on, for example. He of uh, Discovery Network's founding fame and, and uh, the, the chief uh, funder and uh, uh, cheerleader for the uh, the original attempt at pro soccer for the women uh, in this country uh, with the WUSA. WPS is fascinating to me. I'd love to have uh, folks involved there, too. Uh, Tanya Antonucci, a uh, former colleague of mine from my uh, professional life back in the day, uh, amongst many others, uh, and uh, various uh, uh, intrigue there, Magic Jack being one of them. Uh, that franchise alone is uh, is worth an episode. 
Uh, and uh, we, we look forward to, to delving into those and, of course, rooting for uh, the continued success and stability of the NWSL uh, as uh, they complete their uh, Champions Cup. Excuse me, the Challenge Cup. Sorry, I got to get that straight. Uh, in the uh, days ahead here, uh, it actually may be f- uh, done by the time we've uh, dropped this episode. But uh, all that uh, is, is all part of the, uh, the tableau of history of soccer in this country, women's sports and women's soccer in this country. Uh, for sure, and lots more stories uh, to come. You want to read some of Bo's work? Well, of course, we're going to tell you how to do that. Uh, first, how about his website, Dur Sport, D-U-R-E-S-P-O-R-T, all one word, Doersport.com, Doersport.com. That's where all of his uh, books and blog postings and other s- stuff, uh, his social media feeds and all that kind of stuff can be found there. Uh, and of course, we have links to uh, some of his books that are relevant to this week's conversation. Just search up this episode on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, number 174, if you're counting at home. Uh, and uh, links to uh, the following will be found. Uh, 2012, the year that saved women's soccer, is available in paperback and ebook forms there. Uh, you will find a link to Enduring Spirit, Bo's work on uh, his embed of uh, his days with the Washington Spirit. Uh, and the story behind uh, that team. Uh, Not necessarily successful on the field that year, but uh, revealing nonetheless. Uh, You'll find his book, Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. Uh, Fighting words, those, but, uh, you know, uh, it's it's certainly provocative and uh, and, uh, not unexpected. And frankly, as you heard him reference uh, in our conversation, uh, researched and based on Uh, his findings from his uh, reporting over the years, as well as uh, a book that uh, I highly recommend. uh, The only real, I guess, independent uh, analysis and or history of Major League Soccer thus far, uh, arguably uh, not completely up to date because it was written, you know, almost 10 years ago now. But it's 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 a really good uh, uh, synopsis and uh, uh, dig into uh, the founding and the running of the earliest days and years of Major League Soccer. It's called Long Range Goals, the Success Story of Major League Soccer. All those and more from Bo Dur, uh, available for you for purchase. And uh, we highly recommend uh, all of those and uh, and then some. We want to uh, remind you that, of course, on our website at GoodSeatsTillAvailable.com, you will find our social media links. But you can also go and subscribe to those directly. How about at Twitter? You'll find us at GoodSeatsStill. Uh, on uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a, a little web page devoted to us on Facebook as well. Uh, you can send us email from a link on our website, but also directly. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, you can also find a convenient link on the site uh, to subscribe to our weekly newsletter as well. All that stuff uh, waiting for you there at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, thank you, of course, as always. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. His name is Jerry Payne. Take a bow, sir, wherever you might be. And uh, we thank you and uh, his Jerry Payne Audio Excellence for uh, their doings this week to get this show up and out there into the ether. We appreciate to no end you listening. Hey, if you see uh, a chance to rate and review this show, uh, by all means, we'd love to have you, especially those five-star ratings. Do that uh, early and often, why don't you? And tell your friends. And uh, until next week, we will uh, bid you a fond adieu. Thanks for listening, everybody. And please take care of yourselves. And uh, we'll uh, look to see you next week. Bye-bye.